Hello, and welcome back to the RI Science Podcast. I'm Martin Davis, Public Programme Manager at the Royal Institution. For those of you who are new here, you've joined us at just the right time. And for all you long-time listeners, you might have noticed we've been a bit quiet this last year. COVID-19 put our podcasts on pause, but now we're back and aiming to release a new episode on the first Monday of every month. Thankfully, despite the pandemic, we've managed to have some brilliant speakers join our public programme over the last 10 months, live streaming to us from the comfort of their homes rather than from the comfort of our theatre. You can learn more about how to watch those live streams if you head to our website, rigb.org. Now, one of those speakers was award-winning broadcaster, author and psychology lecturer, Claudia Hammond. Claudia joined me via Zoom to talk about the art of rest. We talk about the results of the rest test, which is the largest global study ever undertaken on the subject, to find out how we choose to rest, why we need to rest, and how we can all learn from this to lead a more restful and balanced life. So, without further ado, here's Claudia Hammond. Hello, hi, thanks very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. I mean, being here, obviously, but, you know, being with you virtually is lovely. And at least we didn't have to go out in the rain tonight. So, you know, that's Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty miserable outside in, uh, in London. Um, anyway, it's time to talk about the very serious subject of rest. So your, your book's called The Art of Rest. Um, but, but the first thing, I guess, is what is rest? How would we define rest? Is it, is it the same as sleep or, or how do we go about sort of putting, putting a, a kind of definition of it? Yeah, I'd say it's not the same as sleep. And often doctors will, you know, or, or other medical staff will say to people, you must get rest, make sure what you do is rest so that they can recover without necessarily it being clear what, what that actually means. So what I'm talking about is the kind of rest we do when we are awake, um, but the rest that is, it's temporary, it's voluntary, it's restorative, you feel better afterwards. It's something that gives you permission not to achieve anything particular at that moment. It's relaxing. But it can, as we will hear, it can be all sorts of different things. I mean, the official Oxford English Dictionary definition of rest is is respite from labour or exertion of any kind um, or freedom from of absence of labour, exertion or activity of any kind, leisure, idleness, inactivity. And I think it's really interesting there that some of those definitions put it in opposition to activity, that in a way we can't look at rest on its own without thinking about busyness. It, it's almost hard to define without it being the opposite of, of what's going on. And what I want people to do is to value rest more. And so that's why I've been interested in looking at the the evidence from research and what it can tell us about the rhythms of rest and activity, because we definitely do need to have both of those. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of us feel that modern life means we don't get enough chance to rest and that we might feel overwhelmed with our to-do list. We know that half of sick days from work are taken due to work-related stress. And I think in one way we feel very busy, but if you look at um, time use studies going back, say if you look in the 1950s, it's not the case that people had loads more spare time then than they have now but it doesn't feel like that um, to us um, and I think part of that is that uh, the boundaries between work and leisure have um, become uh, less clear than they were and obviously new technology is part of that you can be contacted any time and of course now that so many people are working from home those boundaries between work and leisure are even less because all the uh, the research that's been done so far shows that people are working longer hours at home than they used to when they went into work even though they're gaining the commute time they're not gaining extra free time um, and they're actually working longer partly because when when exactly should you stop if you're if you're working from home and I think as well we have uh, people do these days seem to have quite high standards for themselves. So people might want to 
be better, you know, try and be better people to improve themselves, say, to learn mindfulness or the piano or to get fit or to look a certain way or to cook amazing meals if people come around in the days when people were allowed to come around for meals. Um, and all of those things are adding to how busy people feel and the amount that they have to do. And I think also busyness has um, almost become uh, something of um, uh, a badge of honour, um, as uh, Professor Goshuni, who, who works at Oxford on, on time use, has put it. Um, and um, the writer, uh, Henry David Thoreau, said, it's not enough to be busy, so are the ants. What are we busy about? So I think we need to think about how much our busyness achieves and whether all of it is necessary or not. And also, if people say, um, how are you? Uh, and, and so they might say to me, how are you? And I'll say, oh, I'm fine, you know, quite busy, a bit, bit too busy, really. In a way, that feels true. But in a way, it's also a claim to status, a claim to saying, look how in demand I am, look how important I am. I must be, I must be really busy. And the problem is that um, we do think that um, busy people are better. And this wasn't always the case. So if you look, say, on Instagram now at uh, celebrities, rich celebrities and their feeds, a lot of the time they'll be showing how busy they are. They'll be showing all the things they're going to, not now, obviously, but usually all the things they're going to and all the things they're doing. They might have a picture of them holiday on a beach, but mostly they'll be doing things and showing how busy they are. If you think of 18th century gentlemen of leisure, and they were usually rich gentlemen, then they um, would show off their status by being busy in their city club and then going off to the countryside to have more and more leisure time, not busy with work things. And so um, I think it's changed how that status is. Um, and there is evidence showing that um, busyness does give us a certain status and that unfortunately we believe that busy people are better. So there's a study I like uh, done by uh, a psychologist in America called Sylvia Velessa and what they do is they give people um, some made up Facebook status updates of a fictional character called Sally Fisher. And there are two versions of Sally Fisher. And some people are given a version of Sally Fisher where she says things like on a Wednesday at one o'clock, she says, um, I've got a nice hour long lunch break now. And at 5 p.m. on a Friday, she says, I'm done with work. That's it. And then the um, she's the less busy version of Sally Fisher. And then there's a busy version of her. And at one o'clock on a Wednesday lunchtime, she'll say, no time to stop. I'm going to quick grab a grab a sandwich and get back to work in 10 minutes. And on Friday at five, she says, I've still got loads to do. I'm going to be here for hours. So that's the busier version of Sally Fisher. And then they ask people what they think of her. Now, interestingly, people don't say that um, uh, her uh, Facebook status updates are a little bit dull and that perhaps they should be more interesting and perhaps it wasn't worth saying them. No, instead, what they say is that the busy Sally Fisher is better organized, probably better at multitasking and has a more interesting and meaningful job. And people have read all of that into the fact that the other poor Sally Fisher was allowed an hour for lunch. And I think that the problem is that breaks have become much rarer. You know, it virtually has to be your birthday to have an hour off for lunch these days. You have to kind of explain yourself. Um, and particularly, we know that when people are working from home, they don't really take breaks. Um, only 1% of senior schools now have breaks in the afternoon and far more used to do that. So it does seem as though there is a sense in which we we feel we can't rest and we feel we can't stop and that it's not OK to. That's interesting. Um, so uh, if I can uh, just back up slightly, obviously, we've, we've talked about what rest is and, and we've sort of discussed examples of people's different feelings around it. But I, I guess I guess this might sound like a stupid question, but there's lots of things that we take for granted as being sort of in 
title case good for us like you know brown bread or reading books or getting exercise and these sort of things are taken as read as being good things we have to be so you're sleeping eight hours a day or whatever and all these kind of things so is rest good for us is it is it actually stopping and doing nothing for you know just twiddling my thumbs or you know doing <laughs> playing a video game or doing some some nonsense thing is that actually good for me or is should i actually be better off learning the violin in those periods of time <laughs> or something useful it depends um so what we need what we need is this is this balance um between uh activity and rest so we do know that when people are resting you know their blood pressure reduces their heart rate reduces we also know it is good for us mentally um and good for us cognitively that it can boost memory and concentration when people have a rest and we know that the opposite fatigue leads to lapses in memory and blunted emotions and poor concentration or misunderstandings um poor judgments even accidents say if people are driving and they're too uh, too weary and there've been some really interesting studies on this side there's one i like um by Michaela uh, Dewar in Scotland um and this is about how breaks can improve your memory and she does very straightforward memory tasks where people are asked to uh, say learn lists of words and then half the group go and sit in a darkened room for 10 minutes the other half of the group are given some other tasks to do not difficult tasks but they don't get a break they have to carry on going and then she looks to see afterwards how many of this great long list of words can people recall and the people who had the 10 minute break can remember significantly more words from that time and she's also done this um really interestingly with people with amnesia now most people with amnesia can't make new memories so it's very hard for them to learn say uh, a list of words um and usually people with amnesia can get 14% 14% of the words on this kind of task but if they have a 10 minute break before trying to recall the words that leapt up Michaela Dewar found to 49% which is really staggering for wow. an intervention when people have amnesia now obviously that's just at that moment and learning word lists isn't a really useful thing but i think it does show us how it can be breaks can be so useful um cognitively and they don't even have to be a really long time so there's a study uh that i really like from south korea on micro breaks so micro breaks i mean they vary in different studies might be 40 seconds long or 2 minutes long this particular study they were 2 minutes long and in these 2 minute micro breaks when people were working in offices they either went to stare out of the window for 2 minutes or lean their head back in their chair and shut their eyes for 2 minutes or go and get um a drink of something but bring it straight back to their desk so they just had 2 minutes um not necessarily even away from their screens but they might have their eyes shut or be doing something else and they got them to take these through the, throughout the day and also they were measuring their attention throughout the day and their well-being at the end of the day and after um uh they'd had a micro break their attention was still better an hour later um than after after that break even though it was only 2 minutes long and at the end of the day if they'd had several of these micro breaks all day long in addition to a prop you know proper break at lunchtime then um their well-being levels were higher at the end of the day and i think the difficulty is that what we do know from the research is that breaks are most valuable when the demands on us are highest and of course that's the time when you're less likely to do it so if people are up against a deadline they often reward themselves um off by thinking well when i finish this piece of work then i'll go and make a cup of tea um i'll reward myself i'll just get this done and then i'll do that um and there's a really interesting study from germany on this and they found that it was a mistake to do this because if people rewarded themselves before um they'd finished if they went and had their break while they were still going they were able to be more productive afterwards because their concentration was better and we know that um 
you know, high productivity is 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 caused by you know attention and creativity, um, uh, not by uh, just hard, hard slog necessarily, that what you need to do is to have those breaks and break off. Now, obviously, not for a really long time. And the trouble is, when you are up against a deadline, that is really, really hard because it is so tempting to just carry on. And now, having seen that research, I very deliberately say to myself, I know this has got to be done, but I am going to go and make a cup of tea and come back and get back into it again, because you can get it done that way. So this is not a charter for laziness, I'm afraid. This is this is about getting the, the balance of rest and activity right so claudia I might, I might have just missed this in your uh when you were talking about micro breaks but but what would be the frequency of those micro every sort of hour every half hour uh, uh yes yeah, so um, i mean you could i think uh, you know they varied it in the, in the study they mm. varied it but yes it would be a really good idea to do that every half hour and obviously we know that screen breaks are a good idea and you know rest your eyes um anyway so i think in a way what you need to do is to um so basically all the things that you're told not to do at school are really good for you, like staring out of the window and daydreaming and doodling, as long as you do them, obviously, not all day and all the time because you can't get anything done. But I think if you want to sit in your office when we're back in offices and shut your eyes, you can say to your boss, this is evidence based. So um, there is good evidence that this is good for me um, and is allowed. And I think that, again, is one of the problems with um, working from home. I know some people love working from home and are liking it better. And uh, the well-being of people who hated their jobs and hated their work places has gone up while people are working at home while there are you know all sorts of technological difficulties to uh, surmount and the difficulties of not you know socializing in the same way but I think one of the real problems is the natural breaks aren't there that happen in many workplaces where somebody just chats about something or you hear something interesting going on and if you work somewhere where you are allowed to uh, get up and, and chat about that some places are obviously very strict and you can't but if you do work somewhere where you can those breaks just happen naturally and that's what you don't get uh, at home in the same way. Mm. I mean, just thinking about this. So when I was at university, uh, my chemistry lecturer, who later turned out to be Peter Wuthers, who gave the Christmas lectures in a for, for, fortunate uh, circumstance, I got to work with him again sort of 10 years later. But anyway, he would um, take a break halfway through. Uh, we'd have this been... Ah. This being a ridiculous university, we had lectures on Saturday mornings. Um, so uh, halfway halfway through his 9 a.m. Saturday morning lecture, he would say, look, you've all stopped paying attention and we're going to take a two minute break. And he'd tell us a little story from the history of chemistry or something. So basically what I'm getting to is, should I at about 7.45 in this talk, should we all just stare out the window for for, yeah, uh, in one would way, that be good? In one way, it's not a bad idea or to get up and be able to just stretch. And <laughs> and I think it's interesting, actually, and particularly online, because we, we know that, you know, people will now have all have heard of Zoom fatigue um, and how it is more tiring trying to attend to what people are saying when you can't see all of their body language and all of the things that are going on, all the cues you would use if you were in the same room um, and that you've got to concentrate. People can't talk over each other in the same way that can be useful and it's tiring. And so I think actually... Um, particularly maybe now with online events that people should be should be having breaks and um, I've noticed actually in some things I uh, quite often chair long whole, whole day events and conferences mm -hmm. and one thing I've noticed with them being online is that organizers will often say well we're not gonna have any breaks because if we have breaks um, people will go away and they won't come back and I try and persuade them I think it's the other way around one you need to be able to concentrate but also people people do need to you know check their emails or you know go to the loo or make a <laughs> cup of tea or do those things and so actually I don't think they'll necessarily go away so I try and I'm constantly campaigning for people to include breaks in their timetables 
Oh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And also, I think if you've got a finish line, if you're like, oh well, this session's over in half an hour, I can get up, make a cup of tea, and come back. You know, then rather than thinking, oh, it's going to be another five hours before I can actually leave my desk, I think that's. You know, yeah, I, I think, think otherwise people are more be... likely to just leave and just think, oh, I can't be doing with this. This is too much like hard work. You know, yeah. Anyway, I think uh, you mentioned something earlier. I think I'd like to delve into a bit more, Claudia. Mm. So you mentioned something called the rest test. So this this was, uh, I think, a bigger survey of people's different attitudes to rest and what they found relaxed. So if you'd like to just explain a little bit more about that. Great. Yeah, so so um, the rest test all goes back to part of a, uh, a residency that I was part of um, on the fifth floor of the Welcome Collection in London um, <laughs> a few years ago, a couple of years ago now. And um, basically a group of uh, five of us got together someone else that wasn't me had the brilliant idea of us looking at rest and we applied for this grant it was actually a million pound grant can I stress that we, we don't get the million pounds for ourselves <laughs> um, and um, we applied for this and to our amazement um, got it um, and then we were able to um, in, invite uh, employ all sorts of people of different doing different things to look from all sorts of disciplines it was interdisciplinary to look at the topic of rest over the next two years and it was amazing. We had artists and composers um, and um, geographers, social scientists, uh, historians, neuroscientists, all sorts of different people all working together on this um, one subject. Um, and I always thought it, it really reminded me a bit of being um, being a student again. Um, and sitting around talking to people from all the different disciplines, except that all these people have been chosen because they all knew so much about their subjects now. Um, and it was it was absolutely fascinating seeing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm all in favour of sort of arts and science projects working together, just seeing the different perspectives that people come from from very different um, uh disciplines were so interesting because so much of the uh, work I do, you know, I'm very, very used to interviewing psychologists and uh, doctors and researchers and um, uh, and scientists who are all great. And I I do love that. But it's, it was absolutely fascinating seeing how the how the different artists worked. Um, and we did all sorts of different things during that time. We had exhibition, lots of exhibitions and public events. Um, there was a um, uh, a new composition um, that uh, the composer uh, created, uh, which was premiered on Radio 3. It was it was an absolutely amazing experience, the whole thing. Um, and, and Welcome gave us enormous freedom to do what we wanted. And uh, one of the things that I was really interested in doing was knowing what lots of people thought. And so um, we uh, with there were lots of psychologists from Durham University who were part of it. Um, and uh, Felicity Callard, who's amazing, was running the whole thing. And so uh, what we did was to create um, the psychologist created the rest test, which was um, an online survey. Um, and then it was uh, launched on I launched it on All in the Mind on Radio 4 and on Health Check, my world service program. And that meant that we had the opportunity to, for it to get out to a really huge audience. So um, uh, across a week, more than um, uh, more than 70 million people listen to the world service in English across a week. No, sorry, 97 now. It keeps going up. It's 97 million <laughs> is the latest figure. Forgive me. Um, and and that's just in English, obviously, more in other languages. Um, and so this gave us an opportunity to reach a lot of people. And and then we waited to see whether people would take part or not. Now, obviously, um, the big downside of this kind of research methodologically is that it is a self-selecting sample. So is it the case we're only going to get people who desperately want to rest more um, or who love spending all their time resting, taking part? Now, we hoped that wasn't the case because it took maybe nearly 40 minutes to fill in. So we're hoping that the 
the laziest people of all who were just resting all the time selected themselves out and wouldn't want to stay for the whole 40 minutes and take part. So so that's what what we hope. Now, obviously, the, so that's the disadvantage of this kind of um, study, because people are self-selecting. You can't get a representative sample. But we were able to look at things like age and income and all sorts of factors that we were looking at to see to see how representative it was. And people took part from 135 countries, which was absolutely fascinating. So in terms of sample size, this did end up being the, the largest study that's been um, done on, on rest uh, to date. And one of the things we asked people was how much rest they had had the previous day. Um, the average was three hours. Um, we asked people um, whether they thought they got more rest than average or whether they felt in need of more rest, um, a bit like we asked earlier. And we found that the people who think that they get more rest than average and who don't need more rest had well-being scores twice as high on average than the people uh, who felt that they needed more rest, which which was really interesting. Mm. Now, obviously, these are averages. So, that, you know, for individuals, you could find uh, different things. And we looked to see in terms of well-being, what seemed to be the optimum amount of rest for people. And it seemed to be about five or six hours. If they'd had five to six hours of rest the previous day, their well-being scores um, were higher. If they'd had, say, one or two hours rest the previous day, their well-being scores were lower. But they were also lower if they'd had more than that. So if they'd had, say, 10 or 11 hours of rest the previous day, their well-being scores were lower. Um, and this might reflect that perhaps the people who'd had that much rest um, were perhaps unemployed and didn't want to be or perhaps ill and couldn't and were forced to rest. And so enforced rest doesn't seem to be restful. It is all about the rhythms of rest and activity. I'm not saying that if we just all rested all the time, well, the life would be great. It, it wouldn't be. It does need matter what it's in opposition to. Um, and I think that's interesting in terms of um what some people found during the pandemic, particularly during, here I am talking as if it's over, not obviously, <laughs> but during the first lockdown, when uh, obviously there, there were suddenly huge differences between how much rest people got, because some people were busier than ever, um, you know, maybe working in hospitals, uh, working in all sorts of essential services, keeping supermarkets going, etc. Some people were working from home and struggling with that and trying to homeschool kids at the same time. They were suddenly really, really busy. Others had been furloughed and now couldn't go out anymore and see friends and do other stuff. So there was this mixture of people, some with more time to rest and some with less. And a lot of people were tell who didn't have work were telling me that it didn't feel restful in the way that they had expected it might, um, which fits in with, way, say, when people are in prison, they may have 23 hours a day resting, if you like, on their uh, bed in their cell if they're unlucky. And people will not find that restful. They find that the time drags and that they feel tired um, and exhausted and it's not restful. So enforced rest isn't the same. It needs to be um, chosen. Um, and we allow people to um, define rest for themselves because people find different sorts of um, things restful. Um, on average, men said that they uh, thought that they got less rest than average. Uh, in fact, they got 10 minutes more rest on average a day than women, but, but only 10 minutes. Um, and then a really key thing that we asked people was what activities, which activities they considered to be the most restful. And this was absolutely fascinating. And this is what I've um, based the um, the book around is the uh, the top 10. I, I count down backwards uh, Sunday, now Friday chart style from 10 down to one of what activities people found the most restful. And what is really interesting for me is some of the things that aren't in there. So um, eating, for example, was at number 21. Um, uh, pets uh, was at number uh, 
14. Gardening, which is very, very popular, was at number 13. Socializing was at number 20. Number 20. Um, even if we took, because we looked at personality as well, even if we took the um, people who were the most extroverted, who scored highest on extroversion scales, still um, socializing and chatting, seeing friends and family didn't come in the top 10, which is interesting, of course, because that's something people are so yearning to do at the moment. But of course, we weren't asking people what their most enjoyable activities were. We were asking them what they found restful. And the top five activities were all things which people um, tend to do on their own. And so one of the things that we've concluded from that is that in order to rest and feel rested, People possibly need a break from other people and that even if they're people you really like and really love, you still have to, they're still tiring in one sense because you've got to consider them when they're there and you've got to think about what they want and, and what they don't. And I thought it was striking that watching TV, which we counted as anything that could be streaming films, watching Netflix, whatever. Um, that came at number nine. And I think one of the things we know about when people are watching TV is um, a fifth of the time they're talking while they're watching TV to each other. But you don't have to. You're allowed to sit there in parallel, enjoying the same experience together. And there is no requirement to try and speak, not try and speak, to have to speak like there is when you're socializing. And so I think uh, it's really striking that what people seem to want is some um, some time on their own. That's a really interesting, especially, you know, during lockdown when you're maybe stuck in your flat with your significant other slash family. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. exactly. Uh, uh, no, that, so um, that's really interesting as well, that, that, because obviously I can imagine, depending on what you're watching on TV, that could totally, you know, if I'm watching an incredibly tense football match that I care deeply about, I'm not going to find that restful in any way. But if I'm just watching some slow TV of a Norwegian train journey, that's going to be much better, yeah. surely. Well, well, that's interesting you say that because the um, one of the, what I've been trying to, to do is to get to the, by looking at all these activities and details, get to the essence of what counts, what, why is something restful when something else isn't. And I think it can be something exciting like, a, a you know, the football match or whatever or the thriller. It can be that because that is distracting you. And I think distraction from what you're from what you're doing and the thoughts in your head that are going round and round, distraction from your worries, I think is one of the really key things about rest. And so we found, for example, that 8% um, of people said they found running restful. 38% of people said they found walking restful. So, um, and both of those things obviously involve some exertion. So it's not the case that that you have to be doing nothing um, in order to feel rested and that some people find that they can't really rest their minds and rest uh, these thoughts going round, the, the rumination, particularly when it's negative thoughts, that they, they can't really rest their mind until they've exerted their bodies. Um, and so, so I think sometimes the exciting thing, weirdly, can be the thing that's restorative and relaxing and, and restful. It hasn't got to be sort of lying down with uh, whale music. <laughs> that, Although, I mean... If you like that, that's fine. <laughs> I was going to say that sort of tracks with my experience as a not particularly good runner, that my brain really <laughs> only has space for thoughts of I can't really breathe and my legs really yes, hurt. Exactly. So I you can't really think of anything else, uh, yeah. like what I'm stressing about work or anything. So I, yeah. I think that's that's definitely true. Um, yeah. I was going to move yeah. on to to one a couple of examples of the of things that you found in the rest test mm -hmm. as as being you know, sort of in your uh, top ten countdown. And one that I was really interested in was number eight, uh, which was daydreaming, which seems like.
like a sort of very odd, uh, an odd activity for, for to be the subject of scientific study. But uh, there has definitely been some some really interesting research on it, hasn't there? Oh, there's been loads actually. Um, it's often called mind wandering um, in the uh, literature, and there has been lots on that. And there's been it's become a real topic of interest for um, neuroscientists um, in particular. And it was always assumed until the early 90s, it was assumed that when the brain wasn't concentrating on a task like uh, doing arithmetic or memorizing word lists or, or tasks like that, solving a problem, that when the brain wasn't doing that, that it would um, just rest and that it would uh, use less energy at that time and there'd be less activity going on. And then um, in 1995, um, a neuroscientist called Barrett Biswell uh, published a, a really groundbreaking paper where um, when people were in a brain are in a brain scanner, um, there's a, a sort of standard procedure where you can see a screen in front of you in order to do the tasks that you're, you've asked to do. And this is if people are in an fMRI scanner that's um, trying to measure the activity in the brain in different parts of the brain when people are doing particular tasks or things. So if, say, you're trying to investigate uh, where in the brain do people do mathematical calculations, then you get them to do some maths. And then before you go on to the next task, which might be something different, you get them to stare at um, a cross, like a, a black background with a white cross or a white uh, background with a black cross. And you get them to just stare at that cross for several minutes. And the idea always has been that this resets the brain to neutral. It just sort of makes it ready, if you like, to start the next task and to see what areas are activated by that. And what Barrett Biswell discovered was that between the tasks, while people did nothing and just stared at this cross, there wasn't less activity, there was more activity, and that it wasn't random, it was coordinated and always seemed to happen when this took place. Um, and this was followed up by uh, another neuroscientist, Gordon Schulman, um, using a PET scanner, a different kind of scanner. Um, and he was hoping to find out what happened in the brain when we pay, really pay attention to something. And he found the opposite. He found that when people paid attention to a task, there was a dip in overall activity. But when they had nothing to do, it was almost as if the brain was set free and, and it went wild. Um, and when he sent this paper to um, the journal, uh, the referees actually, when they were peer reviewing it, thought there was a mistake. They thought that he must have got the data the wrong way around and it should be really active when you're doing the task and really restful in between. So it seems that uh, the brain isn't he really resting when we do nothing? Um, and this is uh, known as the resting state. And there's now been hundreds and hundreds of studies on the on the resting state. The network of activity that happens is is known as the default mode network. Um, and this is the the network that the brain defaults to, if you like, when it hasn't got to be doing something else. And what people are doing is daydreaming. Is is their their mind uh, wanders. Um, and Marcus uh, Raichler, who's who's one of the leaders in this field, wonders whether this activity could account for why the brain appears to use 20% of the body's energy when it only needs to have about 5% of the body's energy. So it sort of is greedy. It has too much. Um, and he calls it the brain's dark energy, you know, the light, the dark energy that mystifies physicists. He's saying it's, there's something that's there in the brain that we can't, we can't account for what's going on. Is it what's happening during the resting state? A lot. But if the daydreams are daydreams that you enjoy and that, that are okay, then there is good evidence that it can help us to be more creative, um, to solve problems, and maybe even to um, scenarios, almost rehearsing the future and possibly even rehearsing what we might do if bad things happen in the future. And that maybe we almost create, he says, um, uh, and this is Moshe uh, Barr at Harvard, um, he thinks that maybe what we're doing is 
almost creating memories for things that might happen in the future that we can then draw on if that thing happens. So, you know, I can't be the only person who, when they do the, um, when you're on a plane and they do the emergency, go through the emergency procedures at the beginning, that you imagine, well, what, so what would happen if the um, slide went down? And how would I do that? And, and how would I get there? What would that actually be like? And, you know, once I'm floating in the sea, is anyone really going to hear that whistle or see that light um, <laughs> uh, in the middle of the ocean? Um, I'm, not, I'm sure it's not just me who thinks about that and who works out how you how you do it and what you do if the front of the plane fell off and would you hold on? Um, and so maybe, maybe, maybe if that happened, then you could um, maybe think, oh, well, this is this is this is what I might um, do. And so maybe we're creating uh, these memories of, of possible events that, that might happen. Um, in the future. But while I was there, we did, uh, while, while I was uh, part of what was called Hubbub uh, um, at the uh, at Welcome when we were looking at REST, um, we had the chance, uh, a, a really interesting researcher um, from the University of Nevada came over called Russell Herbert, and he does something called descriptive experience sampling. And this is uh, a really unusual way of trying to access people's mind wanderings because of course the real difficulty is how do you I mean you can look and see where activity is happening in the brain but how do you get people to uh, uh, subjectively tell you when it's so subjective tell you about their mind wanderings and to do it accurately because the moment you get somebody to stop and write down their mind wanderings that's sort of interrupted what they're doing and then they're not mind wandering anymore and in this method that he's developed called descriptive experience sampling you um, you wear a beeper um, a, a sort of uh, like a pager on around your way on your waist, and uh, at random six times a day it does, and you have an earpiece, and at random six times a day it does these piercing beeps, and then you're supposed to um, immediately write down notes on what you were thinking about the second before the beep, and I had a go at this over five days, and um, and so it's six times, so it's a day, so it's thirty times, and um, uh, it was absolutely fascinating and. Uh, at the beginning of the first day, I was mainly thinking about every time the beep went, I was mainly thinking, when's the beep going to go? And the beep hasn't gone yet. Is it working? Has it gone wrong? Um, and then you gradually get a bit more used to it. And what was slightly disappointing was that I, I thought that I'm often thinking about things to do with work and what I'm doing and thinking deep thoughts, obviously. Not once in those 30 times was I ever thinking about anything deep, which was a shame, or even thinking about work. I was instead thinking about things like... Um, one of them, I remember I was um, um, on a train and I've got a, I've got a sort of uh, running rucksack uh, and it's got little hexagonal patterns on it. And at that moment, I happened to be thinking, I wonder why they did hexagons and did they sit around at a meeting and think, <laughs> I know we'll do hexagons, the kind of thing I think. So and then what Russ Herbert does is to um, interview you at length, like about 10 minutes of questioning about each thought and at first when you do it um I, because my thoughts were so banal um you find yourself slightly trying to make them a little bit more interesting like i stick to the story but just embellish it a little bit and he's so used to this that he discounts the first two days of any interviews about it because he knows that everyone does this and tries to make it more interesting but then he asks you loads of questions about could you hear the thought in your head or could you see it or could you see any words or could you were you imagining people and where were they you know where they sort of up here or down there and and he's it's really interesting how everyone and I thought well this is so subjective how can he be getting anything from this and yet if you talk to someone else who's done it their thoughts do come out slightly differently and that some people see them much more in pictures and some people don't so it's an interesting way of trying to study something that's really really difficult to study I think. Uh, just to uh, quickly say, uh, there's been some fantastic questions already, which oh. I'm already looking forward to putting to you, Claudia. But uh, I think we'll, uh, we'll we'll move on in a second. One thing I was going to say was your description of daydreaming, though, does 
seemingly map quite a lot with the description of dreaming, right? That people say that dreaming is about, you know, going over things that have happened in the day and rehearsing things and sort of like that. So is, is, there, is there any research on, is it more of a continuum between daydreaming, being a bit asleep, being completely asleep, or, or is there a distinction between rest and dreaming in that sense? I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely a, a distinction. And obviously you can, um, I know some people will try and practice directing their dreams, but you can very consciously direct your daydreams and decide what else to think. I think where the similarities are, are possibly in, in why it might be useful in terms of consolidating memories um, and rehearsing memories. Um, so I think, the, I think they're very different states, but the similarities are in in what they might be useful for. Fascinating. So uh, I think it's probably now time to move on to number five, uh, the fifth most restful thing, and according to the rest test, <laughs> which was seemingly similar to daydreaming, but subtly different, which is <laughs> doing nothing. Yeah. So, and we sort of call this doing nothing in particular in this study. So it could be, um, it could be a bit of posturing around um, doing nothing. Now, this is really interesting because. Um, uh, people did put down doing nothing, but some people really hate doing nothing and find it very difficult. And uh, we found that 11% of people said that they felt guilty whenever they rested because they weren't um, achieving. And I think, and, and talking to audiences, so many people have told me that they feel guilty when they rest and that they don't rest because they feel too guilty. And I think that's why some of the activities involve doing something, particularly something that needs to be done, like uh, say one of them is having a hot bath because you've got to get clean haven't you so that's a sort of excuse for doing that and I think giving ourselves permission not to achieve something is quite difficult and so there was particularly say during the first lockdown a real sense that people wanted to do lockdown well and if you hadn't learned three languages and the piano and baked perfect sourdough then um, you really hadn't succeeded whereas just getting through this time personally I think is enough you know that is a success in itself um, so doing nothing I think is interesting um, uh, the French philosopher Pascal famously said all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone um, and it does seem that um, some people can just, uh, and this doesn't mean falling asleep, of course, this isn't having a nap, but some people can just sit and stare into space um, and maybe daydream but or lie on the sofa. Other people find it um, difficult to do. Um, and so hard that there's one experiment, people might have heard of this, it got quite a lot of publicity at the time, although interestingly, this was only one of the nine conditions that they were looking at. But there was an experiment done by Timothy Wilson at the University of Virginia, where um, people uh, were given an, uh, a practice at having an electric shock. And they had a, a sort of bracelet around their ankle and they could press the button and give themselves a not harmful but painful electric shock. And then they asked people, would they pay $5 not to have another electric shock? And only the people who said, yes, they would pay not to have another electric shock went into the next bit of the study. And in the next bit of the study, they had to sit in a room for 15 minutes where there was a table and a chair, but no phone, no newspaper, no book, nothing to write with nothing to do at all they weren't allowed to fall asleep they just had to sit there for 15 minutes but they could if they wanted to give themselves another or more than one if they wanted to of these electric shocks and I think we'll do a, a poll on this one again so if you had to sit in a room doing nothing for 15 minutes do you think you would give yourself at least one electric shock bear in mind you have already tried it out so you do know what it's like so it's not just about curiosity uh, let's see what people uh, say. Oh, we've got some yeses already. Um, oh, we've got quite a lot of noes. I think Sorry. I'd be in the yes. I'd bore Would very you? easily. Oh. Why? 
Oh, because you're bored. I because I, yeah. I just I, my mind would wander after ten minutes, and I think I'd be like, oh, go on then. <laughs> you think it'll be something to do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's the only thing you can see, and you're aware it's there in your ankle, and you've got the button. So I think that's interesting. So we've ended up with eighty six percent saying no, and thirteen percent saying yes. Now, what they found, in fact, and of course we don't know, we don't know who's men and who's women here, because what they found was a really strong sex difference. So seventy one percent of men and twenty five percent of women gave themselves at least one electric shock. <laughs> Um, and it would have been interesting to know what they would have said beforehand if they'd been asked like this, whether they thought that they would. Um, and one man gave himself 190 electric shots, <laughs> which honestly is not bad going in 15 minutes because you'd have to, I mean, that's, you'd have to go quite fast to do that. But masochists apart, he obviously you know, liked it. But the people who, who don't like it, um, I think it does show, it does show how difficult it is to sit um, in a room doing nothing at all and that usually when we think we're doing nothing actually what we're really doing is pottering um, and that in some ways it's quite admirable the people who can sit and really do nothing um, and that doesn't count say doing something like mindfulness or meditation that came at number 10 actually because that is doing something um, and so um, uh, it's it's intriguing that so many people said that they they can do that but not nearly as many people as doing some of the other things Fascinating. So uh, I'm going to crack on with some of the other uh, things that, that were rated in the rest test. We had somebody in the in the chat was a bit concerned that we weren't going to say the top five. So doing nothing was number five. So could you just briefly say what four and three were before I uh, ask you to explain? Uh, yes. Three? So um, number four was um, listening to music. Um, number three was being alone, which was interesting because the top five are all things that people tend to do alone. I mean, you could do nothing with somebody else, but um, you might actually do it alone. You could listen to music with somebody else. People often do do it alone, though. Uh, so, yes, number three was being alone. And number two, which is the one I'm going to ask you to uh, expand on a bit more, uh, might surprise some people that this came so highly, but it was spending time in nature, which uh, I haven't been able to do very much unless you count going to the park occasionally with a dog. Um, yes, and, and actually in in, um, uh, in Canada and India, spending time in nature came top, mm. um, which was which was quite interesting. Most most countries had absolutely the same things top. Um, Germany had being alone top was the other um, difference. Mm. But most people had the same, almost exactly the same top five as the UK. Um, so spending time in nature was picked by slightly more women than men, just just slightly. Um, and I think that's an interesting one um, because intuitively, you know, a lot of people will say being in nature is relaxing and being in nature is restful. And it's been surprisingly hard to prove in some ways in research and there a lot of the studies that have been done on being in nature uh, don't really have an adequate control um, condition or they're very very small samples but there have been some some good studies there are some studies which get um, quoted often but which have a, a few interesting things going on with them which might mean they don't mean quite what we think so um there's a famous study done in 1984 by Roger Ulrich called View from a Window. Um, and this was done um, in a hospital. People had just had gallbladder surgery. Um, and uh, some people had a view from a window of um, trees and nice things. Other people had a view of a brick wall. And he looked to see uh, when people left hospital and how many painkillers they took. And he found that the people who had the views of the trees took fewer painkillers, significantly fewer, and they left hospital an average of one day earlier. So that sounds brilliant. Um, there's just one problem. They weren't randomized to be in one or other of these conditions. And so it's um, and the view over the um, 
brick wall um, was nearer to the nurse's station and the view over the uh, trees was further from the nurse's station. So it is possible that the illest patients get put near the nurse's station and that the uh, slightly less ill patients get put further away and they got the nice view. And they, so maybe they were less ill in the first place, which is why they left hospital earlier and took fewer painkillers. But Roger Ulrich is forgiven because he did a much better study. In the 1990s, he did a randomized um, study of this where patients, this time he just used photos, big photos on the wall, and patients were randomized to either have a photo of a stream or a nice stream in a forest um, or to uh, just have a picture of a brick wall. And the ones who had the stream or the forest took fewer painkillers again and were less anxious, uh, which was nice. Um, more recently, there's been a study um, done showing again that just pictures can make a difference. Um, this is by Kate Lee in Australia. And 40 second micro breaks in an office, um, people either looked on their screen at a picture of a, um, is a, a, a roof top with just a, 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 like a rooftop on a skyscraper with um, tarmac, grey tarmac on it, or they had a rooftop with um, a meadow on it, but it was exactly the same and everything around it was the same, but they'd superimposed a meadow on top of it. And they had to break off from their work and look at this for 40 minutes. Um, and this did seem to make a difference to people's well-being um, and their attention if they looked at the uh, meadow rather than at the um, boring very boring uh, grey roof, um, and so there have been some, there have been now some better studies uh, where they get people. For example, Stanford's done one where people either went on a long walk and they they check with GPS that they've been where they said they were. They went for about an hour and a half's walk, either um, around the um, lovely landscaping um, and the and the woods and so on that are around um, Stanford, or along the. Uh, sort of six lane highway. I mean, it's still quite a nice six lane highway. You know, it's got <laughs> pictures of, it's got lovely agapanthus all growing and, you know, it's Californian and hot. So it's, it's, it's not nearly as bad as that sounds, but they did find significant differences. And they also used brain scanners and they found there was less rumination in those who'd been on the countryside walk than the other one. And I think some of the, um, explanations for why people find nature relaxing, and I think that they do, many people, not everyone, but many people, um, are sometimes leave a bit to be desired. So sometimes there are evolutionary ex explanations given and people will say, oh, no wonder um, people like being out in nature because, uh, you know, humans evolved mainly on the savannah. And so that must have been lovely and relaxing. So no wonder they like being out in nature. But of course, many humans in the last 40,000 years have evolved above the tree line or in deserts or on tropical islands. It's not all in the same place. Um, and uh, also, I don't believe the savannah was always restful because obviously there were these things called lions and other things that would kill you. So um, uh, I think it's a bit different from going for a lovely country walk now, going for a, a walk if you lived on the savannah and then there was prey around. Um, and, and, and some will say that humans have a, um, that this is all proved by humans having um, a preference for trees which are um, thin and then wider at the top, the, the kind of those kinds of um, trees that you see in the savannah. Um, but in fact, uh, they don't. In fact, when you look at cross-cultural studies, the sorts of trees people like are hugely influenced by where they grew up. So in the UK, many, many more people will say that they like oak trees. In Switzerland, many, many more people will say that they like uh, pine trees and other fir trees. And so where you grew up makes a, a massive difference to the kinds of um, landscapes you like. Um, and there's Finnish research showing that the most restorative places tend to be associated with childhood memories or places where you used to live um, and that it's the meaning that matters that, that people give to these things. But I think there are some elements that are more convincing, for example, that 
um, nature has uh, landscape study, landscape views, if you like, have a sort of soft fascination about them, that there's lots of repeated, um, uh, the fractal qualities of nature I mean there are lots of repeated shapes and that that might be, uh, we can take a whole view in at once. It's, it's fascinating, particularly if there's water and something slightly moving um, without being really, really complex. So a, a city view might be lovely. I love standing on Lullins Bridge looking at the views, um, but more complex because there's more to take in and that maybe this lets us relax somehow. But I think it's more to do with the perspective that nature gives us and that um, the perspective that time moves on, you see dead tree stumps and you see this kind of cycle of life going on. But also I think it can put your own worries into perspective that even in just in your local park, there are beetles living their lives that don't give a monkeys about the things that you're worrying about at this moment and that things are carrying on and going on. And I've been really struck over the years. I've, I've interviewed quite a few astronauts um, and they're always interesting astronauts, I think. Um, and they all say the same thing, which is that when they went up, say, to the space station and spent time there, they hardly have any time off, but they do have some. They have some breaks um, and they can take a very small amount of personal stuff with them. So they can take something like two books and that they take their two books and they spend ages choosing their two books really, really carefully um, and hope that they haven't got the same two books as someone else there, I expect. Um, and that, um, but in fact, they never read their books because any spare time they have, they spend staring out of the window, looking back at Earth. And it's well known for lots of astronauts have become very interested in the, you know, in environmental protection um, and feel very precious about protecting the Earth, but also just fascinated by that perspective they get when they, they, they draw right back. And, and I think you can do the same thing for yourself you know there's a nasa um uh the nasa satellite uh you can you can watch the nasa satellite live online and uh you know the space station goes around the earth every hour and a half so if, if you just have it on sometimes i just have it on in the background on my computer and you can just see the view sometimes it's dark obviously where you're looking and then suddenly you see twinkling lights and then you might see deserts and there is something about getting that far away um, perspective um, on things um, and there was a study that people might have heard about that came about out just um, uh, about a month and a half ago uh, by Virginia Sturm a psychologist in the states about all walks that's not or as in a paddle but or awe and these all walks they gave people um, people were over the age of 60 and they had to go for one 15 minute walk a week. One group just did that. And the other group went for one 15 minute walk and then were given some very simple instructions that while they were on their walk, they should um, look for things that uh, made them feel awestruck. And they didn't have to be uh, they didn't have to be nature, but people often did pick things that were nature. They could be human made. So it could be an amazing building or something like that. And they had to look for the things that inspired in them a childlike wonder that they may have forgotten about. And they all did. They did this once a week as well. And uh, at the end of the time, they looked at various measures of well-being and pro-social behavior, how, how, pro-social thoughts, how how um, uh, sympathetic people felt towards other people. Um, and they found that uh, there were positive benefits of doing the all walks. And the other thing they did was to get people to take selfies wherever they went. And they actually did this to get people to prove that they'd done it so that they weren't uh, mucking about. Um, and they got them to take selfies and they noticed, and she told me they were staggered by this, that over time, the um, people who went on the all walks made themselves smaller in the selfie and made the world around them bigger in the selfie, almost as if 
they really were changing their perspective and on things and feeling that um, there was a bigger world out there. And I think that uh, my hunch is that rather than the other explanations, that that is what uh, nature is doing for people. And what's amazing about the all walks is once you start, you can't stop. I mean, now I just find myself doing it, just going to the shop to get some milk and mm-hmm. looking at the trees. I mean, it's helped that obviously there's been lovely leaves on the trees to look at, but now I just keep spotting things and thinking, oh, I'll have that, I'll have that. That's an all thing. And so um, um, it's it's sort of compulsive, actually. I'm quite wow. proud. Well, I think we've now arrived at the point in the talk where we finally uh, reveal what was number Yay. one in the rest test. So uh, as as uh, this comes from your new book, you're probably very pleased to reveal <laughs> that number one in the list was actually reading. I know. It's brilliant when you, you, you're going to write a book and you find that number one, uh, reading is number one. Uh, publishers are very pleased about that too. Now, we were surprised about this. So 58% of you could put down more than one activity, three activities in order. And 58% of people put down uh, reading. Um, and we were quite surprised by this because reading does involve some cognitive effort. Uh, you know, you've got to make sense of the, um, uh, you know, see the letters and make them into words, make sense of the words, um, and then make, make meaning of what you're reading, put it into context with what you already know, perhaps with your own life, perhaps with what you were reading earlier, um, and do all of those sorts of things. But reading does seem to be um, relaxing. And it's really interesting when I looked around for studies on why reading might be relaxing. It was very hard to find studies that had specifically looked at this. But instead, um, what I did find was various studies on things like yoga and Tai Chi, where reading had been the control condition. And so almost by accident, researchers had found out how relaxing reading was. I felt quite sorry for them in a way because they're probably hoping to demonstrate how relaxing yoga and Tai Chi are. And then they chose as their control something that seemed to be just as relaxing. And so many of these studies found they were equal. So it's not that the yoga and the Tai Chi weren't relaxing. It was just that reading was as relaxing as well. Now, it doesn't seem to make a difference whether people are reading fiction or nonfiction. And I think that what is special about it is that, again, it allows people to escape from the thoughts and the worries. And I think this is such a crucial part of rest. They may feel it's easier to give themselves permission to do it because reading is generally these days, obviously it wasn't always seen as a, as a good thing. There were times when, you know, parents were supposed to stop their, their children reading novels. And in, in um, early Victorian times, they were not seen as a good thing at all. Um, but it allows you to escape to empathize and reflect on other people's lives uh, even non-fiction books often have obviously stories of other people's lives um, and to be alone to not as in not have the effort of being with the other people but also to be in company in a way that they've got the company of the characters and there have been some studies on uh, loneliness in older people and how reading fiction um, can uh, sometimes help to alleviate that and there'd been some really interesting studies on this. There was, uh, in the 1980s, Victor Nell, uh, did lots of studies on this in South Africa, um, and found lots of avid readers and did lots of bookworm studies. He advertised actually to say, do you read more than four books a week? Um, and, uh, uh, he had a, um, frustration index where he asked people how desperate they would be, how they would feel if they were, um, stuck in a hotel room and didn't have a book. And people, the real bookworms would say that they would feel desperate and desolate and dispossessed. And, and that's uh, quite an entertaining study. But also I think I like the studies on, um, I think the other thing that reading lets you do actually again, it, back to this is daydream. And so. There have been really interesting studies on what psychologists slightly judgmentally call mindless reading. Um, and mindless reading is we've all had the experience where 
you read all the way down the page and your eyes are moving and you get all the way to the bottom and then you realize you haven't taken any of it. So you go back and you read it all again and you still haven't taken any of it because you were thinking about something else. Um, and you can um, tell there's some really uh, interesting studies. Uh, there's one by uh, Franklin and uh, et al., uh, which is uh, from 2011. Really interesting studies on, on mindless reading where they use eye tracking devices to work out when people aren't concentrating. And uh, they can do this because when you're not concentrating, your eyes do still go across the page and down and down and down. But they do it at a constant speed if you're not concentrating. Whereas if you are reading it, people slow down fractionally, which eye trackers can measure, if they come across um, a word that's unfamiliar or um, if uh, they come across a very long word, even if they know it, a really long word, people will slightly slow down. So you can tell whether people are reading or not. And it does turn out that quite a lot of the time people are, are not concentrating on when they're on what they're reading. But I think that's fine. Even with my book, that's absolutely fine. I will allow that because I think it's it's because it's a jumping off point for daydreaming again, which might be because it's about other people. and You might then reflect on your own life and how that fits in with those other people. Or you may think more um, about uh, about their lives as well. And um, and that it sort of stays with you. You know, Virginia uh, Woolf used to talk about the emotional effect of books staying with you for days and said, you know, wait for the dust, read something and then wait for the dust to settle. It will return, but differently, um, which is so, so true. And we did wonder, and you may be wondering this, whether people only put reading because they were trying to look good. But... <laughs> We did notice, of course, you know, doing nothing came at number five. So people were perfectly happy to say that they liked doing nothing. So I think we have to take that at face value, if you like, of being OK. Uh, so a couple of people have asked this in the, in the chat and I thought I'd jump in now, which is. Yeah. Uh, so was it was a what they were reading in terms of nonfiction, fiction, anything like that taken into account? And also whether they're reading stuff on, you know, one of these or a Kindle or an actual real book with pages and everything. Like, did that make any difference? Yeah. So in the in the rest test, we didn't know what people were reading, but there have been other studies done which have found that um, nonfiction and fiction don't seem to make a difference in terms of relaxingness, if you like, but they do make a difference in terms of empathy. There's been really interesting work done on um, the increase in empathy that people who read a lot of fiction um, seem to get. And there's been increasing amounts on that, um, that they are, you're reading something where it's really well described from very personal way from another person's perspective. Um, and um, in terms of, I can't find any studies that have been done in terms of relaxation and reading um, when it comes to e-readers. Um, and what we do know is that people can't, um, they can't, it's, it's much harder to remember the name of the book you're reading if you're reading it on an e-reader because you don't keep seeing the cover uh, because it's not left around. So um, people will, I find people will often recommend me books and they'll say, it's really brilliant. I'm reading it on my Kindle, but I don't know what it's called. And you know, that's not really helpful. <laughs> I find a similar um, thing with but, music, actually, with because yeah. obviously with streaming services yeah. like Spotify, you don't have the album yeah. cover and the CD that you've bought that's that reminds yeah. us that something happens yeah. that I'll be listening yeah. to the record and be like, oh, yeah. again. But I, th I think there's a real gap actually research-wise for some, for, because as I was saying there, there are these sort of accidental studies where reading and relaxation are there. And I think it would be really interesting to know about the restfulness of reading different sorts of things. But, and also some, some of the, some of the studies um, on whether people liked reading and how often people did it to count uh, magazines and, and newspapers as well. Um, it can be reading reading anything that it is reading for pleasure, if you like. So even Twitter? Does Twitter count as reading for pleasure? <laughs> that's, well, that's, <laughs> that's very interesting to discuss. Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because 
Yes, because well, because then you could just say um, surfing the internet in general, uh, and it's interesting that that uh, uh, nothing to do with uh, the internet came in the top ten, um, even uh, when people could put anything at all down that they wanted to. So even though people are doing it, uh, it again people may really enjoy it. it doesn't mean they necessarily find it relaxing i think it would twitter it would depend a lot it'd be quite hard to do a study on twitter because people aren't getting the same thing so it depends a lot on who you're following so if you follow lots of argumentative people you disagree with then uh it may be less relaxing and if it's there it goes with all you know social networks as well like you know instagram yeah. or facebook or whatever it depends yes. on what's going on on your particular facebook or your yes. particular instagram yeah. that might now obviously instagram tends to have beautiful pictures Mm. You know, many people's feeds have more beautiful pictures. So I think I think many people would say that they found Instagram more relaxing than than Twitter, even though they might, you know, like both. So, you know, I do both. But the Instagram is more I, I, it's lovely seeing people's beautiful pictures. There's one called this. I tell you one that's really relaxing. Now, there hasn't been any research on this. I just find it really relaxing. It's called Adventures in Jelly. And <laughs> it is every single day with with really old Edwardian molds. They make a different jelly and then they wiggle it slightly and film it in the most amazing slow motion. And oh, they're just stunning. They're so stunning and relaxing. I'd like quite like to do a study on that. Fantastic. Well, so if that's one tip on uh, maybe being more, do you have any other uh, evidence-based <laughs> yes. tips? That I've got we some evidence-based ones. Yes, the jelly, to be fair, is uh, not it's more a theory than that's a, an, exactly. That's just my theory. anecdote and data's <laughs> not the plural anecdote. Yes. So, but in terms of um, the things that uh, uh, that I think have come that have come out from all this evidence, so I was saying, you know, do the things you're not allowed to do, do Ling staring out of the window and things like that. There's been some really interesting studies on uh, one way of resting before bed. Um, um, so resting in order to, that you can get to sleep faster um, is uh, some interesting research from the States on making to-do lists before you go to sleep. Now, that may seem sort of counterintuitive because you may think, oh, the last thing I want to do before I go to sleep is think about all the things I've got to do tomorrow. But there seems to be in a way that it's offloading. If you make a, a to-do list, it could be on the phone or written down um, before you go to sleep, that it's it's offloading. That's all down on that piece of paper now. And that's what I'm going to do. And I haven't got to worry about it. I haven't got to worry about remembering it because it's on the list. But also that's for tomorrow. It's not for now. And seems to put it out of people's minds. Um, and often people find trouble sleeping because of what's going around in their minds. Um, the other thing I think people should do is to to find the two or three um, activities you find the most restful. And of course, they will be as we seen from the research you know they are different for different people but to find the activities that you find the most restful and to work out how you can for the sake of your mental health so you needn't feel guilty prescribe yourself 15 minutes of that really restful activity say in the middle of the afternoon so I have started doing this and if I am working um, at home then I gardening is the thing I find really restful and devastatingly it wasn't in the top 10 so I couldn't write about it um, I'd have had to do lots more chapters to write about that but um, uh, what I do do deliberately now, I admit I didn't today because it was pouring with rain, is to go out into the garden for 15 minutes in the middle of the afternoon and just, you know, potter a bit and deadhead things and muck about and look at, see what I'm growing. I've got a tiny greenhouse that just room for me to stand in and look and see what's happening there. And um, I find for me that is so restful that I can feel the waves of calmness coming over me and then can come back and um, work again and and feel so much better. And I used to, I mean, I used to, you know, sometimes do that anyway, because I really like garden, being in the garden, particularly if the weather's nice. But and then I, but I, then I would feel guilty. Now I don't feel guilty at all. I just think, well, this is for the sake of my mental health. It's just 15 minutes. I'm going to do this. So I think it's well worth working out what are the things that are restful that you can build in 
to your day. If some people are so busy and obviously people, you know, particularly people have got caring responsibilities as well as work and people with very small children, it is very hard to find any time to rest at all. There, one thing I would say is to try to uh, reframe any wasted time you can find as rest and to notice when you're getting some rest. Um, and so maybe if um, you've missed a parcel and you've got to go and queue at the delivery office, um, that's really annoying and it's going to take you 10 minutes. Um, and you may feel frustrated because you've got loads to do. But at another time, if somebody said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to grant you 10 minutes of rest now where all you've got to do is stare at the world to go by, then maybe you would like that. Um, and uh, so I think you can reframe wasted time as well. I've got a bonus opportunity um, to rest now. Um, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, and maybe think about whether whether exerting the body to rest your mind is something that you find relaxing. It's good to um uh, experiment uh, with doing that to see whether or not that works for you. Fantastic. Well, Claudia, we've had, I've just been compiling all these questions. We've had so many brilliant questions. So I'm just going to launch straight into them. We'll try and get as many as we can done. Okay. By, uh, I'll, try and, I'll, try uh, not to, I'll try not to give too long answers so that you get more in. Uh, so as this question's come up from a few different people. Um, Gavin, David, Ian have all asked a similar question. Gavin says, how do different cultures impact what is seen as rest? David says, which countries, regions is the busy equals high status, most and least prevalent? And Ian asks, is there a nation whose population status stands out as being masters of the art of rest. There's all lots of cultural and different countries. Uh, just to answer Ian's last question, I've always found Canadians very, very chilled out. So maybe it's them or maybe the <laughs> well, Dutch. Well, it's interesting that Can Canada was the ones who had nature for top um, as ah, their response. Yeah. So maybe, they're, maybe they are onto something there. So um, what was interesting was in terms of how many hours of rest people got, we didn't see enormous difference between um, – there were nine countries where we had um, – Big, big enough samples to really look in detail at this. And uh, we didn't see enormous amounts of difference. I mean, they were sort of things like, you know, three hours was the average amount of hours of rest. Um, and that may sound like quite a lot, but remember, people could define what was restful. So if if your train journey is restful for you or cooking the dinner is restful for you, that would count. And so um, some countries were, three hours was the average. Um, some would be more like three hours and nine minutes and others would be, you know, two hours and 57 minutes. But there were not really significant differences between countries in the amounts of rest that they said that they got. Um, people who took part were, um, the um, survey was not translated. So people were taking part in English. Um, so that may have made some difference in some places to who spoke um, English. Um, uh, an anecdote, which is only an anecdote and not data, which was that <laughs> when... Um, Interestingly, the very first um, countries to buy translations of my book who immediately got in touch with the publishers and said they were very interested in the topic of rest were um, Japan and China and Taiwan really fast, um, which was uh, uh, very uh, interesting, I thought, instructive. Um, so there seemed to be an interest, you know, an interest in the topic there. And that would make sense with what we know about some of the you know ancient uh, traditions uh, that are, you know, involving uh practices you know meditation practices and so on and things that people might um consider restful um there was one bit in the, what was the very first one of those questions you asked oh sorry yeah something put... in it that I. so yeah so how do different cultures impact what is seen as rest so oh, what's seen as rest know, yes. something restful in yes uh, Japan so that's actually yeah. restful in england yes so um i don't know if other studies that have looked for that because there have been so few studies done on rest that i don't know other studies that have looked at that but in ours that main difference was that india and india and canada having nature first mm. and germany having being alone first but other than that i thought the top 10 were remarkably similar so it wasn't that 
socializing or gardening suddenly you know supposedly you know britain everyone loves gardening allegedly but gardening <laughs> didn't suddenly shoot up high in those which i thought the uniformity about it was quite interesting actually yeah and no, no just then the, the other question was it was about that kind of being busy is equal to having a high oh, status yes, um, yes. Now, is that kind of now obviously with Western business practices uh, yeah. sort of worldwide? Is that kind of now sort of standard, or or is it, or is you know being a sort of emperor sitting on a gilded cushion or yes. something <laughs> valued I'm, more in other cultures? Really interesting. I I don't know of studies that have compared lots of cultures on their attitudes mm. towards uh, business because so much of this is new. But um, I was mentioning earlier the study with the fictional Sally Fisher that Sylvia Balesa did. Mm. Sylvia Balesa also did a study. Um, comparing uh, people in Italy with people in America. And uh, they, this one uh, had a, um, uh, an Italian called, uh, he was called Giovanni for the Italians and Jeff for the Americans. <laughs> and again, they gave him a sort of fictional picture of this person, not, not Facebook updates this time, just a description. Um, and in one of the, one of the men, one of the Giovanni's, Jeff's they were told about, um, spent not that much time working and quite a lot of time seeing friends and doing other nice things and interesting things. And the, um, uh, other one, again, there was a busy version of Jeff Giovanni who spent most of their time working and didn't have much time off. And then they asked them how successful they thought they were. And the, uh, in Italy, more often people said that they thought the man who didn't work very much was successful. And in America, people thought the man who worked a lot was successful. So in Italy, the, the reasoning went more that he's so successful, he doesn't have to work much anymore. Whereas the Americans thought the successful people work more. And that's that's the most interesting cross-cultural study I know on business, on, on this status idea. So I, I think if you did a study around lots of countries, you would find differences. Yeah, fascinating. And actually, while we're, while we're on the world of work, there's been a couple of questions uh, about that, actually. So uh, Neville asked a really interesting question uh, about uh, how many employers have shared with their managers, supervisors and team leaders that their employees need maybe permitted a few seconds of eyes closed left rest every half hour. And and somebody else, I can't remember where, where that went, um, was saying, yeah, so, so what would, would that mean, therefore, we should maybe shorten the working week and, and build in? So it's kind of working more than 40 hours a week is going to be obviously you're going to get less and less productive the, the more and more hours you work. And, and so therefore, should we be thinking about, you know, limiting working weeks to 35 hours and building in sort of mandatory rest breaks in there? Yeah, it's really interesting this. And, and there's been this, you know, whole debate about the um, the four-day week um, and whether the four-day week would be uh, helpful so that everybody could have three days doing other stuff instead. And I think, uh, I think it's really interesting, the four-day week idea. But I think what might be the issue is, and, and obviously what people like about that idea is that in, in theory, you're, you get paid the same for your four days. But if your workload is going to stay the same, then what's going to be sacrificed is the breaks on those days, I think. Mm. So there might be swings and roundabouts with that. So you may have your nice three days relaxing, but your four days work might be really, really hard. And then you might miss the natural breaks that you, you the breaks you would like to take during the day, which can also be you know, interesting and sociable and that we, we know we're missing out on the socializing network and know how important that can be. Um, and so if you had four really, really hard days and then your um, you may spend your fifth day just recuperating from having the hard day and then spend your weekend dreading it again. Um, so I think they have to, I think they have to be looked at really carefully. People really people do four day weeks do seem to be really popular if the workload is managed and I think that's the difficulty and I think that can be the difficulty if sometimes um, employers will say oh you don't need to um, 
you know, uh, nobody should be working more than their 40 hours or their 37 hours. And we really don't want people to have to work more than that. But if you're giving them too much work, then um, that can just be even more annoying for employees, I think, to be told that they're somehow being wrong for working too long if that's the workload that they've been given. But I think it's really difficult because I think workloads in so many places are going up. And also, I think that there are so many places now where if you think of, say, some some call centers or um, delivery you know, depots um, where people's breaks are very, very regimented. Um, and people's loo breaks are timed and so on. And I think that's a, a real shame that we've got to a stage where that's happening. Yeah, and uh, someone someone actually mentioned that. I've lost the name, actually, that said, I can get stressed if you order me to rest now. Rest means to me the ability <laughs> yeah. to get bored or daydream. But, but sort of, you know, if it's, uh, yes. it's 11 o'clock, it's the enforced company stare at the wall for a minute. Yes. You know, yes. I, I yes. don't know if that and would so be think, restful. Yes. No, enforced rest, uh, enforced rest absolutely isn't. And that's like back to the, the people in prison or the people who are mm. furloughed. You know, if, if it was enforced, it's not necessarily fun in the same way. Um, and... Um, uh, so, you know, it doesn't necessarily work. And it's, uh, yeah. So it, it, autonomy at work is so important. If there's ways for people to be given autonomy at work, it makes such a difference. Mm. Uh, John mentioned an interesting point where he said, I find target shooting to be restful, especially Ooh. when I can get into the zone. And that that bit about getting into the zone, I think it's called a flow state, isn't it? Is that yes. the sort of psychological term? Yeah. Was yeah. that kind of looked at? Because for me, a flow state is subtly different from just kind of doing an activity or I don't know it sort of means yeah. like you're sort of in in the zone you're flowing you're doing the thing yeah it's, it was that kind of I mean obviously this was a self-reported thing so people might not self-report being in a flow state as being yeah. a, a restful but, thing but, but was yeah, that this, kind of looked so at in other was, research yeah flow is flow is really interesting and it's, it was a concept that was developed by the psychologist Mahali Csikszent Mahali and um flow is um when you feel so absorbed by something that it's not exactly that the time goes fast or the time goes slowly. You're almost out of time and you just sort of don't notice the time passing. And people may get that from um, it's often creative things, but but not always. So it may be something where you have to really have to concentrate and make, make a lot of sense with the target shooting. Again, that stops you thinking about those thoughts whirring around in your minds and the stresses. And I can see why that would then be relaxing. Um, many people, it might be something like painting. They can just get really, really into it um, uh, or I do find that gardening, I mean, I can just do it for hours and hours and be really, really um, just calm and, and, and happy in that state and stop worrying about other things. And so I think there is quite a lot in common with flow, actually. Um, uh, but I think that uh, an activity doesn't have to give you flow, uh, get you into a flow state in order to be relaxing. But I think what they have in common is this stopping other thoughts going. And it's, it's so important, this um, things that um, distract you from those thoughts so that you're not thinking about them all the time. Hmm. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, so more slightly more uh, silly questions coming up, I'm afraid. Uh, ben asks, was smoking considered a restful activity in the rest test? And I, I'll probably add, it depends if you're smoking a stimulant or a depressant. Really, or... <laughs> Um, yeah, smoking didn't come up. I don't remember smoking coming up. I mean, it uh, uh, may have done in the free box where you could say anything at all. Then lots of nice things like listening to the radio came up there, which I liked. Um, but um, but no, it didn't. And, and, and interestingly, um, drinking was at number 20. Yeah, number 20 was drinking socially. And, uh, you know, we know it is not uncommon for people to relax, for the, find a glass of wine relaxing. Um, so it was interesting that that didn't come up, didn't come up high, in fact, as what people found restful. 
Hmm, really interesting. Um, so uh, Scarlett asked, asked a, an interesting question, uh, which was, could procrastination be a result of our tendency not to get enough rest? So the reason we're putting off starting that job is is because actually our brain's still kind of whirring and we haven't sort of rested. Is, is there any, uh, I know there's some interesting research out on there on procrastination. Yeah, there is actually. Yeah, procrastination research is, is, is really interesting. Um, and sometimes it is that um, uh, you, are, you are afraid of the thing that you are procrastinating about, that you are worried that you will... Uh, fail at a, a project and sometimes they have found that people who score high on p scales of perfectionism might tend to procrastinate more because they're afraid to get started in case uh, they they fail and don't do it as perfectly as they'd like to but that is not always the case um, every time um, and um, and I think sometimes people people procrastinate because they, they sometimes find it that it's hard to focus and it is harder to focus if people are feeling tired and weary um and so it's interesting because you could be you could be resting while you procrastinate you see you could procrastinate by keep having breaks um and uh interestingly when i was talking when i was talking to the a-level students this morning they were very keen on the idea of resting a lot and i was telling them how they they're not to go home and say to their parents this woman today told us we must rest all the time because that's not what i'm saying it is all about the rhythm of those activities so i think it may be um that may be one way you need to where you do want to save the reward of your rest until you've done some so that you've got started and once people have got started then procrastination gets less of a problem becomes less of a problem mm, fascinating um so uh, there were, uh, just to, to repeat i think somebody asked a question uh, earlier about the the sort of the the top 10 so 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 we had we had the top five but but your book is 10 i think isn't it yes so it is I, yes. I, don't know if, I don't know if you want to give people the countdown and yes. just comment on some of the ones you haven't said before yeah so mindfulness was number 10 oh it's mindfulness or any type of meditation uh was number 10 uh watching tv which i did mention was number nine that did count as anything to do with watching screens watching you know moving pictures on your screen uh daydreaming was number eight having a hot bath was number seven uh going for a walk uh, was number six so 38 percent of people put down uh going for a walk um and interestingly 16 percent exercise generally and eight percent running um doing nothing was 40 percent listening to music uh, was just under that. Uh, being uh, was forty one percent, just over that. Um, being on your own, being in nature, and your own reading uh, was number top. Was the top one. And interestingly, like spending time with your pets, uh, animals, which I thought would be really high, uh, was at number twelve. So didn't make it into the top ten. Sex that... was at number twenty two. Um, <laughs> oh, daydreaming... somebody asked that in the comments. I'm glad that. Oh, came did up. they? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, interestingly, uh, younger people younger people under the age of 30 people were more like daydreaming sex and uh what's the other one having a hot bath came out higher if people were under 30 than if they weren't with the sex i don't know if that means they're doing it the right way or the wrong way uh, <laughs> found it more restful oh well, there you go so adrian uh says therefore walking alone in nature with music and, beers <laughs> and daydreaming at the same time is there, is, there, is there any way you can multiply the effects of the different forms of rest that's such a good that's such a good idea i th i wonder if you found the ones depends if you suddenly had so many different stimuli that you then started to not feel very restful after all but that actually does, does sound really nice because then when you get back you could have a hot bath and then <laughs> read watch a book some in the bath. tv yeah. Uh, yeah read a book in the bath then watch some tv and then you just need to get in the uh well then sit and do nothing and then you just need to get the mindfulness in as well. <laughs>
So, but but then, Tom, I think you, I think you mentioned this right at the start, but for those who didn't catch it, um, Tom asked, is there a tipping point when more rest stops having benefits? And I think you sort of yes. said 10, hour, yes, like 10 hours of rest a day. Yes, so, so more than five to six hours of rest a day was less rest, uh, was where people's well-being then started to go down again. Mm. Um, so, um, yes, it is absolutely about the rhythms of rest and activity. It's not just a question of the more rest, the better, because obviously in the end, rest can tip over into boredom, like I was saying, you know, people in prison will not say they feel rested, they're bored. So there's a couple of, uh, I'd say, more challenging questions that are sort of like, safe till the end, just to keep you on your toes. So <laughs> David David asks, how reliable are people's self-reports? Of course, the rest test was all self-reports, yeah. and he sort of talks about this. Yeah. But yeah. how, do, uh, I mean, these are just sort of what people said were the most restful things. Yes. But there, is, is there any way that we've done sort of neuroscience studies to prove that this is you know, what people self-report is the correct thing? How, how do people know how they really like to rest? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Are, are people wrong about inevitably it's subjective so are people wrong about what they say so mm. there are some studies like the ones i was saying about say for example comparing reading with rogue reading with yoga um which do look at things like uh you know people's heart rate and uh blood pressure and galvanic skin response and so on um in response to those um it would be lovely if there were a study which compared all of these 10 um to see what difference it made to people there are studies on each of them um, about uh, whether what what impact they say might have um, on the body. I mean, there's lots and lots of studies on um, listening to music, uh, for example, and looking at the sorts of music people choose when they are um, uh, stressed or not stressed, um, and looking at uh, where personal taste comes into that and and how that um, that works. But they're they're very much more individual studies of these of these different um, activities rather than or comparing um, all at once. So what would be really nice is to follow a group of people while they did each of these activities and to, to then look to see how accurate their self-reports were would be really interesting. Yeah, um, and, and just, uh, you were talking right at the start, you were talking about people uh, taking more rest, scoring highly on well-being. Um, Matthew made an interesting point was, is maybe you could flip it and actually the ones that have the self-confidence to make the time and allow themselves to rest <laughs> are therefore the ones with the higher well-being and therefore so it's the well-being causing yes. the rest rather than the rest yes. causing the well-being oh absolutely it could be this <laughs> so it was it was absolutely cross-sectional and so um uh we don't know which came first so you need to do a piece of longitudinal uh, research to do that um but uh but yeah it, it could be and that's why partly what is so interesting i think with our with our relationship with rest is it the case that if you're already happier you find it easier to rest possibly mm, that's a very interesting point uh, to end on definitely buy the book the art of rest is available in all good bookshops now uh, probably all over the world as if you're saying it's being translated into japanese and chinese and yeah lots and lots of languages fantastic yeah. Yeah. so yeah. and it has good names in other languages as well so the one in dutch came out last week and it's called rust which i quite liked well, is that the Dutch for rest or yes. is it? Oh, I yes. Well, I assume it is. Or oh, they've got completely the wrong idea about what it's about. But yes, I assume it is. But it's just called rust across the front. I just thought it was quite yeah. funny. Oh, it's, it's, I thought it might have been one of those things where like how, you know, James Bond is Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in China. Like it's been translated <laughs> into some kind of yeah. other completely different thing. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> so, yeah, please, please do uh, go out and grab your copy of The Art of Rest. Um, Claudia, where can people find you on the Internet if they want to find out more about your book or anything else uh, about your work? They can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Claudia Hammond and they can find my website is ClaudiaHammond.com and then All in the Minds, my Radio 4 programme, Health Check is my World Service programme. But all of those, are, there are links on my website.
website. There are links to um, all of those. And can I just say what brilliant question? I'm just looking at all the other questions. Um, people ask such good questions at this event. I know this, this has been this fantastic. One. There's yes. been so many brilliant questions. I haven't been yeah. able to get to all of yeah. them. So thank you yeah. so much for joining us and uh, sending in all of your thoughts and comments. It's, it makes my job really easy and quite entertaining as well. So thank you so much for, for all of your contributions. But in the meantime, I'm now going to go off and uh, stare at the wall for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks very much, Claudia. It's been an absolutely fascinating evening. And uh, take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you've liked this episode or have any feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support our work from as little as $1 a month, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. And remember, you can catch more of these talks from a whole host of thinkers by tuning in to our public programme of events. We're currently live streaming on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so head to rigp.org to sign up to those. See you next time.